Rory hates how we have taken this sideways. I don't like that we've descended into poop talks. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 42 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And I'm Rory. Welcome back, everyone. It's been a while. (laughs) Yeah, we all survived, though, which is good. I think that's the theme of this year is like asking each other, have you survived? (laughs) And have you gotten your vaccine? That's going to be the next question. Oh, Oh, Allie got her vaccine. I'm very excited about that. Yes. Yeah, I should have told you earlier. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm excited because now, like, she's the most at risk in our household. So uh, I'm really happy that she is not bringing it in potentially. Just the first dose? Just the first dose. She got Moderna. Mm -hmm. You know, now you can make the excuse once she has her second shot that, oh, you know what? Safer for you to do all the shopping. (laughs) (laughs) I like how you think, Kenny. (laughs) I'll just give you a list. (laughs) Even during like the height of the pandemic, I was still doing all of the grocery shopping. So I don't know that that's going to (laughs) change. I I was explained that my mom also got her first shot. She's getting her second shot in, I think, next week. Uh, But I basically just pointed out, you know, if you get, you're the only one in the household that's vaccinated, you're you know, dad's going to make you do all, all the shopping. falls on you. <laughs> Which shot did she get? AstraZeneca? Uh, sh- no, she got uh, Pfizer. Oh, okay. So she they... works in uh, the medical field. Uh, so that, this... that's how she got access to Pfizer. Makes oh, me okay. think of a question. Do you have any choice in which of the Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca is just whatever they got on hand? You get what you get. My parents got the AstraZeneca one just because it, it opened up to anyone over 60. So that was mm. the first one that came available. So they opted for that one. Yeah. So they kind of made a choice in that, but not really because that was just the only one available. Yeah. I'm saying you can't like walk into your clinic and be like, I would like a, a Moderna, please. No. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. It's not like a menu, like a fast food menu. <laughs> I feel peckish today. I'll get a Moderna. <laughs> And by the time we get shots, we definitely won't be able to choose. We'll be getting Johnson Johnsons. Oh, are they just like... It's the one shot. It's not as good. Oh. Yeah. I want. I really want an mRNA vaccine, though. I know. Because I, I just think it's a cool technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, just, I just want the cool one. I don't want the boring one. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Really, I do. I just want to be like, ooh, I have mRNA coursing through my veins. <laughs> Sherry and Kenny become anti-vaxxers because they can't get the shot that they want. <laughs> we believe in the shot. We want that one. <laughs> I don't want some, you know vaccine that was invented 10 years ago (laughs) i don't even carry you know an iphone past three years (laughs) i don't want any knockoff brands i want like full couture vaccinations (laughs) oh my gosh well hopefully soon we'll make it Mm -hmm. soon I'm, i'm hoping things will accelerate and i can Enjoy my summer. I'm just mm. <laughs> counting, yeah. counting down the days. It's going to be such a relief, though. Like, I can only imagine the feeling of, like, that weight coming off of your shoulders of not having to be worried about anything. Going into work, going to the store, going, you know, outside. Yeah. Wherever. Do you think we're going to see a rise in, like, people who feel, I've had the vaccine, I don't need to wear a mask anymore? Do you think that's going to happen? Oh, for sure. 
Mm. I hope not. You, you already see people in the U.S. having that type of attitude in terms of they once they get their vaccine, they believe they can take the mask off. The, the problem is the vaccine definitely like prevents you from going to hospitals. But with all these variants, who knows whether yeah. it actually stops spreading. So. Mm-hmm. But at least there's some good positive indications in terms of like Israel, because they have vaccinated such a high amount of uh, percentage of their population. Their cases are just plummeting. Nice. So it's a very, very good sign. Very encouraging. Leave this behind in 2021. Yeah. But today we're going to talk about something different. <laughs> uh, so we're going to talk about some more um, mythical topics. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I don't... I didn't want to say it's all false. Let's let's go through it before we say it's uh, all false. But so the first one I want to uh, talk about today is uh, the Loch Ness monster, or our good friend uh, Nessie, as <laughs> it, they usually refer to uh, in Scotland. So in Scotland, there's a large lake, the Loch Ness. It's a very large, deep freshwater lake, and I'm sure you guys have seen the. The image of the Loch Ness monster, or this, this uh, black and white photograph, the surgeon's photo. Correct. Yes, it's a, it just looks like some you know this dinosaur neck that's sticking out of the water. Um, of course, it's black and white. Of course, it's blurry. <laughs> uh, so it's been claimed that there's this freshwater monster that lives in this lake, and it it all kind of started you know, almost like hundreds of years ago in terms of people claiming uh, certain monsters living in the water, etc. But it really kind of started taking off in uh, around the 1930s, where uh, once they started building roads uh, along the lake, uh, people have been claiming various sightings of strange objects in the water, etc. So it tends to kind of correlate... These sightings tend to correlate with uh, increased population traveling around the lake. And uh, in 1933, a local couple claimed that they spotted this enormous animal rolling and plunging on the surface of the water. And that kind of sparked a lot of public interest in, uh, in these sightings. And more and more people started showing up to kind of look for uh, this uh, monster that was... Uh, uh, that this couple kind of claimed to have seen. And by October of 1933, several London newspapers actually sent correspondents to Scotland to actually report on these sightings. Hmm. It's interesting, the British cir- a British circus even offered a £20,000 reward for the capture of this uh, creature, which sparked even more interest and <laughs> more people kind of flocked to the region to kind of look for this monster. Then, uh, also in that year, the London Daily Mail hired a actor, director, and big game uh, hunter named uh, Marmaduke uh, Wetherell to track down this monster. And after a few days, he actually reported that he found large, fresh uh, footprints of this four-toed animal. And he made a plaster cast of it and sent it to the Natural History Museum in London. And it turned out that when they actually did analysis of of this plaster cast, uh, it actually looked like 
a hippo's foot. <laughs> so it it turns out that someone actually uh, used a stuffed hippo's foot to actually make these tracks. Uh, so very bizarre that uh, how uh, people were able. First of all, why do you have a hippo's foot? <laughs> There's a lot of questions we have here. <laughs> There's a lot of questions. First of all, why do you have a hippo's foot in Scotland? And why did you use it to make tracks? <laughs> so, uh, but nonetheless, uh, after that incident, you know, there were a lot of skepticism of whether this uh, Loch Ness Monster actually exists. But overall, you know, it never went away for hmm. many, many years uh, following. People kept reporting thousands of sightings, reportings of long necks and flippers, and they even, uh, people actually created the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau <laughs> that was formed in the 1960s to investigate. Um, and this is, you know, over the many years, they would use various technologies to investigate, uh, not just, you know, sitting on watchtowers watching the lake, but also sending uh, boats with sonar to sonar the lake to see if they can find the monster. Um, of course, they never did. <laughs> so, um, but uh, going back to this, that famous photo that I, I mentioned, that black and white photo, uh, it, so it turns out after many, many years of investigations and some uh, confessions <laughs> of certain individuals, uh, it turns out that the stepson of uh, Marmaduke uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, he admitted that he made a monster by grafting various um, pieces of plastic and wood to kind of make a neck, attached it onto a toy submarine, and sent it into the lake in order to <laughs> fake the photograph. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Turns out it's very easy to... Uh, fake things, even in you know the 1930s and all the way to today. <laughs> this actually, um, I was just studying uh, Noah's Ark for a school assignment the other day, and I came across a, a quote that seems relevant here that says, of all the expedition parties that have gone out looking for evidence, proof of Noah's Ark, every single one of them found something. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Meaning that if you go out looking for a piece of Noah's Ark, <laughs> somehow You'll they find all it. find it. Yeah, that's exactly So it. the other interesting uh, data point I would like to cite as well is it's strange that, you know, if you plot the if you plot a graph of camera resolution over time, uh, camera resolutions over the years have increased exponentially. Yet the resolution of any of these photos kind of stayed the same. It's always blurry, mm -hmm. far away. <laughs> and it's just unusual that our camera technologies have improved over time, over many, many years, yet <laughs> the photos always end up blurry and fuzzy. None of these boat crews has an iPhone? What's going on? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Isn't it funny how that works, though, with all kinds of mythical creatures of, like, ghosts or... UFOs or the Loch Ness. It's always like a blurry picture. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, but I, I think um, why there's continued interest in things like the Loch Ness Monster is we actually have found uh, living fossils before. So, um, I don't Do you guys know about the coelacanth? Mm, don't know that one. Okay. A, a coelacanth is actually a fish. 
It's a fish that kind of has four limbs. It's kind of like a very Ooh. primitive uh, feet um, uh, on its fins. And the coelacanth was thought to have gone extinct, you know, back in the uh, when dinosaurs were still roaming. So they, there were many, many fossils of coelacanths um, uh, along, along, you know, uh, the same time period of as a lot of these dinosaurs, and I believe the Cretaceous period. But it turns out that they actually discovered living coelacanths in uh, 1980, uh, sorry, 1938. So they were actually able to find some uh, off the shores of Africa, which kind of sparked this interest. Notice the time period in the 1930s of people discovering large uh, extinct animals hmm. and the thought of you know maybe the Loch Ness monster is some uh, dinosaur that lived in the water that's uh, was able to survive all these uh, millions of years uh, after catastrophic incidences. Um, but the coelacanth is a very primitive fish, but it's been able to survive in its form for millions and millions of years in very hmm. small um, populations. Um, in kind of these uh, isolated areas in the ocean. Huh. So, and what's even more interesting is a second species of the coelacanth was discovered in Indonesia in a fish market in 1997. <laughs> so relatively recently, uh, the scientists were at a, at a fish market and they found a coelacanth <laughs> in the fish market. Uh, and they were able to confirm... Um, a second species of coelacanths in um, near, in the waters of near Indonesia huh. uh, about a year later when they found kind of living species uh, in the ocean. So it's not unheard of to find extinct species, especially from like millions and millions of years ago, which uh, gives some, I guess, some supporting data of why people continue to kind of believe that maybe there is some kind of like ancient species that <laughs> has gone undiscovered. But we're talking about a big monster. Like, that's like this is yeah. a lake. Where is it getting its food source? <laughs> I just don't understand that part of it. Yeah, probably eels. The only thing that's in that lake is like eels. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I they've done it... other studies where they actually uh, sampled the water of the Loch Ness uh, to actually measure what type of DNA is in that water. Nothing unusual has been found. The majority of the DNA in that water is literally all eels. Mm. <laughs> I find the obsession of like deep water that humans have to be very interesting because it's like we have this fear when we can't see what is around us. So like you can't see to the bottom of the lake. So you're like, oh, the fishes are going to eat me, right? The Loch Ness is going to come and eat me. I think you're hitting on it. It's like a, a vast, unexplored, uncharted domain. And so it's still so full of possibilities. Anything could be down there. And so imaginations mm -hmm. are free to run wild. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I, I definitely also have a fear of like really deep water. <laughs> I, I definitely have gone, you know, snorkeling before in the middle of the ocean, like literally like in the middle of the ocean where a boat took me out. Uh, I will tell you there I had a lot of anxiety <laughs> like getting into that water, uh, especially after you get into the water and then you saw, you know, a couple sharks swimming below you. You're like, uh, now I'm getting a little bit more anxious. Nope. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, 
I definitely, uh, I second, I had a second thought in terms of why, why am I here? (laughs) Why am I in the middle of the ocean? Getting the extreme. I think you can get kind of lost in that abyss of, you know, the ocean or even if you think about it, like space or something where it's just so Mm -hmm. like it continues on and on and you don't really know where it ends. What is your fear around the deep water? Uh, See, in space, nothing's going to bite your toes off, whereas (laughs) in the ocean, (laughs) something can definitely bite your toes off. Just a little nibble to see if you're worth eating. (laughs) Fish are friends, not food. (laughs) Listen, I I love sharks. It's just that I just don't want to be eaten by a shark. (laughs) So, and, And it's definitely, you know, my anxiety rose a little more when... You know, you're in the water, and there are sharks swimming underneath you. Um, I, I'm just glad um, I didn't see one particular shark, uh, because uh, at, 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 this was a trip where I tra- uh, traveled to the Galapagos, and we were, like, in the middle of the ocean. And I had given my GoPro to two scuba divers uh, who went down deeper below me. And when they came up, um, they, they gave me the footage, and I was reviewing the footage of the GoPro. Um, during uh, one of the situations, uh, someone was running out of air, so they did an air exchange, and they had pointed the GoPro camera up above them, and there was a very large hammerhead shark that just swam right by them. <laughs> they didn't even notice oh. it. <laughs> and, of course, I didn't notice that, that was below me as well, but <laughs> it was, uh, I was glad I didn't see it. <laughs> I love sharks. I think sharks are so cool. I'd love to go swimming with sharks one day. But not where they put in the chum in the water. Just like when you're swimming yeah, around no. with them. <laughs> Don't make them hungry, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Before I finish, uh, do, do you guys know that Canada also has its own um, lake monster? Ooh, where is it? Have you, have you guys heard of Ogopogo? I have, yeah. I think I have, actually. Yeah. So in uh, Kelowna, uh, in where it's uh, there's a very large freshwater lake called uh, Okanagan Lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a very large freshwater lake, very similar to the Loch Ness, very deep, very large. Um, but you know, uh, Okanagan tribes uh, used to kind of describe a water beast that lives in that water. Uh, and there were some traditions of making, you know, small animal sacrifices um, so that it's a peace offering in order to cross the lake uh, so that this monster wouldn't, uh, you know, attack and drown you or uh, any kind of livestock you might have as you're trying to cross the lake. Uh, so the, there's this myth around this uh, water monster that lives there. People have lots of photos of strange shapes in the water that kind of look like waves to me when I look at the photos, but okay, whatever. <laughs> it's strange shapes, always at a distance, always very blurry. <laughs> um, so pe- people kind of thought, you know, these strange shapes in the water is some kind of uh, large water monster, uh, likely the shape of like a large snake or eel or something like that that lives, in, uh, uh, lives near Kelowna. But uh, another interesting fact about that about the area as well as uh, the bc government actually enacted the bc wildlife act uh which protected various species but specifically also protects 
Ocopogo <laughs> because <laughs> they uh, this uh, act prohibits the hunting or disturbance of Op- Ocopogo, uh, which restricts people from going into the lake, you know, trying to search for it, you know, sending sonar devices out, things like that. So uh, even though they acknowledge it probably doesn't exist, They'd also want to protect it if it does exist from people <laughs> trying to uh, disturb the wildlife or disturb the environment. Oh, maybe other wildlife will benefit from this restriction. So it's a good exactly. thing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's probably their intent is like, we don't want you harming the other stuff that's here. So like, don't go looking for it, please. <laughs> no, no. A hundred percent. That was the intent. Yeah. <laughs> the intent was they, they noticed that people uh, were flocking to a region to you know, try to find Ogopogo, and then they enacted this wildlife act to protect various wildlife. Um, I believe the wording they kind of stated, you know, uh, it protects uh, species uh, with a vertebrate that's larger than three meters. Like, they wrote in very generic terms, but they were totally trying to say, (laughs) stay away from anything large. (laughs) Stay away from our Ogopogo. (laughs) Exactly. Because, you know, what fish is over three meters long (laughs) (laughs) love it that was a good one i like the loch ness but i think in that area there's been there's other myths as well that people have uh have been promoting and celebrating one that we celebrated recently was uh the leprechaun on saint patty's day and so the leprechaun is pretty much exactly what you expect it to be um it is um a figure in Irish folklore uh and uh something interesting was that he was first spotted back in the 700s um so long long time ago he's been around for a long wow. time a lot longer than apparently the Loch Ness I thought the Loch Ness would have been a little bit older but uh our friend the leprechaun is is quite old um and so he is the source of mischief um he's very difficult to catch so if you find one, you should uh, you should uh, keep your eye on it because if it gets away, it won't give you its gold. So you have to demand that it gives you its gold, and then um, you have to keep your eye on it. Otherwise, uh, it will escape and it won't give you its gold. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it's part of an oral tradition um, that dates back way long before it was written in the Middle Ages. And so it was embraced um, sort of in the Irish culture. And uh, a lot of scholars think that it comes from a few different legends, um, a few different gods. Some people believe that it was a Celtic god um, who lost popularity uh, as Christianity kind of rolled in. And so when gods in this Celtic tradition, lose their popularity. They go to this underground world where uh, they have to kind of stoop over, like, like so they become smaller, like they're stooped over. So that's where they believe that the leprechaun got its small stature from, is because he's stooped over in the underground world um, where all these other gods um, go because people have forgotten their traditions or embraced new religions. So uh, that's why they believe he's short. But leprechauns were shoe cobblers. And so they, apparently this is some sort of lucrative business in the fairy world. They're fairies (laughs) 
and they're, you know, taking care of people's shoes and fixing them and stuff. So when you hear the tap, tap, tap of a shoe being repaired, which who even knows what that sounds like anymore, uh, you should look around because maybe there is a leprechaun around. And um, yeah, and so it's very successful at, at holding on to its gold. It has a, a gold pouch with it. Um and, uh, yeah, so a lot of medieval writers liked to write about the leprechaun. So they kind of heard about this uh, folklore of the leprechaun, um, and they started writing about it. And that's kind of where we get our modern-day uh, leprechaun from. Um, because before uh, some of the writers, um, before the 1800s, really, the leprechauns were described as wearing red suits. Uh, so they didn't have anything to do with green and uh, then it changed when an Irish poet named William Ellingham wrote him to be in a green suit in the 1700s. So, so that's where we're getting our modern day uh, leprechaun from. And uh, that is the rep- leprechaun. Um, there's a few fun facts about the leprechaun, though, that I wanted to share with you. So there is... Um, a small town uh, named Carlingford, and they made leprechauns a a protected species. Uh, So like you were talking (laughs) about, Kenny, again, they've made it law that leprechauns are a protected species. Uh, So on St. Paddy's Day, instead of looking for the leprechauns, um, they have um, ceramic and stuffed leprechauns that they put up on this mountain and uh, so it's all hidden nearby. And then um, people go looking for these these leprechaun statue kind of things. And if you find one, you get a cash prize. Um, so I thought that was really cool that you could make a mythical creature a protected species. <laughs> and there's also Leprechaun Park in Oregon. And it's um, a very small park. It's apparently just like a flower pot. And it's considered to be the only leprechaun colony west of Ireland. So leprechauns are apparently an endangered species. And there is only one leprechaun colony west of Ireland, and it's in Oregon, of all places. (laughs) Sorry, did you say in a flower pot? Yeah, it's pretty much just like a, like the whole park is just like a flower pot, essentially. Um, Yeah, it's very small. Um, so just a set of flowers in a pot and that's where the leprechauns live. (laughs) Hmm. Okay. There's a whole colony apparently. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I just found myself getting super curious because you mentioned leprechauns and mischief. And so I'm like, Oh, what kind of mischief do leprechauns get into? I wonder. There are a few. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, you go ahead. You're the expert. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I didn't write them down, but there were a few little, like, I don't know, uh, other legends that were kind of pulled in, um, about leprechauns. Um, some of them talking about spilling milk and some of them talking about drinking the wine in the cellar and things like that. And they were often found in cellars because of the wine down there. Um, so I kind of approve of this little guy. Like, you know, yeah, go where it's good, right? priorities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What were you going to say, Rory? <laughs> oh, I, I quickly looked up some leprechaun mischief. And apparently it's a lot of stuff dealing with misplacing items, moving your toothbrush into your pantry, you know, putting your shampoo in your fridge, that kind of silliness. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's kind of like what are the, the elf on the shelf kind of thing. Yeah, like little silly mischief things that happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But according to the 1993 movie Leprechaun, <gasps> they can murder too. <laughs> yeah. There have been movies made about leprechauns as well. Yeah. Um, there, was... there is a whole series of movies. <laughs> I remember them in the video store back when video stores were a thing. <laughs> there is a musical called Finian's Rainbow, and it was starring Fred Astaire. And it was nominated for an Academy Award and a, Glo- a Golden Globe as well. Uh, did not win. Did not get the cash prize, but uh, it was nominated. I think that there have been quite a few, though, that are maybe a little culturally insensitive to um, people, little people. Mm. I'm not sure if that's the proper terminology. That's last I heard was the proper terminology, but people of a smaller stature. And I think that now we would look back and be like, ooh, that movie, not so great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That happens a lot. I recently rewatched, you know, some old classics like Back to the Future. And some of the scenes you're like, ooh, <laughs> you kind of like cringe <laughs> a little. Yeah. Like, that would not be acceptable How today. How far we've come. <laughs> yeah. So leprechauns are an old one, but a good one. And we still celebrate them every St. Patty's Day. Well, I guess. I don't know, kind of celebrate them. People just go out and drink. So, yeah, those are leprechauns. <laughs> so what's the thing about, like, pot of gold? Like, why, why, why is it this pot of gold at the rainbow, at the end of the rainbow? Mm. That's um, where the rainbows factor in. Yeah, I don't know why the rainbows factor in. I think that's more of a modern interpretation, um, probably written up by the poets and writers sort of in the Middle Ages. Yeah, because mostly they said that um, leprechauns um, held on to like a bag of money because they were, I don't know if they're getting paid for helping people cobble their shoes together or (laughs) what happens, but they have accumulated some sort of wealth involved. It seems really wrong that after all their hard work cobbling shoes that people catch them and shake them down for their hard-earned gold. It just doesn't (laughs) seem right. (laughs) Well, the thing is that people don't because you always lose sight of it at some point. Turn Uh, your back and it's gone. (laughs) Yes, it's a very wily creature. Yes. But then are they paying taxes because now they're tax evaders? (laughs) Yeah, no, there is an agency. We'll track them down for this. (laughs) If you stay off the grid, like, you know, you never really have to pay those taxes. So I'm sure they've made made quite a fortune off of their tax evasion. (laughs) Wily indeed. That's frowned upon. Think think about the social contract we all make to (laughs) pay our taxes and help, help people. That's it. We're going out to the streets. Leprechauns held accountable. We're going to have our picket signs. And... <laughs> yeah. Down with the 1% and leprechauns. <laughs> and leprechauns. <laughs> Tax the 1% and leprechauns. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm here with you. And that's about it. That's one celebration that we had recently. So it just passed. And hopefully people stayed inside and didn't go searching for leprechauns this time. Indeed, indeed. It's interesting that you bring up uh, folklorists kind of making little tweaks and adjustments to the myth, because that was also pretty relevant to the creature that I decided to study the origins of, which is the Easter Bunny. Yay! I came, chocolate. Yes, yes, chocolate. I came out with a few different uh, renditions and a few different articles that challenge one another, and I'll just get started, and you guys can weigh the 
the pros and cons of each for yourselves. So, beginning with a, an article I found in Time magazine by Alexandra Sifferlin, one theory is that the symbol of the rabbit stems from pagan tradition, specifically the festival of Eostra, a goddess of fertility whose animal symbol was a bunny. Rabbits known for their energetic breeding have traditionally symbolized fertility. Eggs are also a representative of new life, and it's believed that decorating eggs for Easter dates back to the 13th century. Hundreds of years ago, churches held had their congregations abstain from eggs during Lent, allowing them to be consumed again on Easter. According to History.com, the 19th century Russian high society started exchanging ornately decorated eggs, even jewel-encrusted, on Easter. All right. Now I'm going to delve more into how Easter, or the Easter Bunny, came to America now. And according to this Time Magazine article, the Easter Bunny first arrived in America in the 1700s, with German immigrants who settled in Pennsylvania. And they transported their tradition about Osterhaus and had their children build nests in which they put colored eggs. And eventually the custom just spread and took hold in the U.S. I wonder what about it people got excited about. I don't know. But Maybe it's the interesting. Of to, the eggs. Yeah, fun mm-hmm. child activities like that. Mm-hmm. If this is and it seems to be a Germanic origin to Easter Bunny, it would join proud tradition of German imports to America, such as Santa Claus, mm-hmm. Christmas trees, you know. But, not disputing the Germanic origin, but there are some uh, extra details to note regarding how old exactly the Easter Bunny is. That's what this skeptic uh, Stephen Winnick was challenging. He believes because a lot of it became a point of debate that the Easter Bunny was not ancient but really modern as a creation, and he's placing it around nineteenth, late nineteenth century. And but he also gives us a couple new renditions that uh, put some wrinkles to the myth. First off, we're going to talk more about the tale of Ostara or Oster, and that's that uh, ancient Germanic goddess of spring and fertility. So to start with. The idea is that she transformed a bird into a hare, and the hare responded by laying colored eggs for her festival. Okay, there's a starting point for us. But the first wrinkle in history is she found the bird with frozen wings and saved it by transforming it into a rabbit, and that's why it retained its ability to lay eggs. So the rabbit would be, or bird, transformed into rabbit, grateful in that instance. Another notion is that a bird who laid beautiful eggs was so proud that it irked Ostara, and uh, so she turned it into a rabbit. She was so moved by the rabbit's despair that she allowed it to lay its beautiful eggs still once a year. So we've got kind of a savior goddess or a angry, vengeful goddess. Which do you two prefer? Mm. I don't know if I have a preference. (laughs) (laughs) All it was the chocolate. (laughs) I'm kind of stuck on this idea. So that's where we get the eggs from because clearly, like, somebody must have noticed that when bunnies give birth, they don't actually lay eggs. They give birth to bunnies, like full bunnies, right? So so at some... But they do have, like, round chocolate colored droppings. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where the chocolate comes in. Okay. I don't I think it. you should be encouraging this study. <laughs> so I think that's how, I guess I'm, I'm intrigued by that. So I guess that's how they explain it then is, is the reason we have eggs that we're decorating is because it came from a bird 
that was turned into a bunny. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's kind of where I was, too, is they're trying to rationalize, well, how do we have this bunny that lays eggs? Mm. Mm-hmm. And this is really hard for me to follow in terms of the, the logic that it took to go from bird to bunny. Well, it's interesting that they're also merging the two symbols of fertility. You've got the bunnies symbol of fertility and also the eggs symbol of fertility. And they're like associating it with this goddess of Stara, who's goddess of spring and fertility. So it's like taking all these different things and just smushing them together to produce an Easter bunny. They sat down one night with a good bottle of wine and we were like, how can we combine the two fertility symbols and make it make sense? Okay, so there's this goddess. <laughs> Hear me out. There's this goddess. <laughs> she found this bird and she thought look better as a rabbit. I think I'd go for the um, the one where she's like, oh, this bird is too pretty. I want to be prettier. Just because every myth that we've heard about gods and goddesses and stuff is like, they're just so full of themselves and they want to be the prettiest or, you know, most beautiful <laughs> thing in the room. So uh, I think that she did it out of spite. Oh, scornful. The spiteful god, <laughs> mm-hmm. I see. <laughs> I prefer mm-hmm. the, the gentle nurturing goddess myself, but to each their own. <laughs> I prefer the uh, theory of two guys who got drunk and came up <laughs> with a story. <laughs> you know what, Kenny? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Because okay. uh, there's a popular blog out there called The Family Christmas Online. And it calls the story, the whole story that I just recounted about uh, bird turning into a hare. A modern-day hoax popularized by New Age circles. But that is challenged by uh, the author of this, Winnick, who says that... uh, Holtzman was writing in response to the work of Jacob Grimm. So yeah, he's tracing it to uh, the 1830s and saying that it was one of the members of the Brothers Grimm who came up with this myth, which would place it as old but not exactly ancient. So according to him and his research, he wasn't able to find any mention of Ostara or this myth before, you know, the Brothers Grimm. It doesn't really fit with Brothers Grimm. Brothers Grimm is, like, really gruesome. I, yeah, if the, if the uh, goddess had, like, murdered the bird to make it look like a rabbit, then, yeah, it would be Brothers <laughs> Grimm. But, like, If it was a brutal no, transformation. It's too tame. <laughs> too tame. Well. It's coming from uh, 1874, another book titled Deutsche Mythologie, that's the Holtzman book, speculated that the already popular German tradition of the Easter Hare was the origin of this. And it contains a lot of the same elements where Teutonic goddess Astara transformed in a bird into a quadruped. It's another one that uh, emphasizes that the, the bird slash hare was grateful to be transformed. He's really hung up on the fact that uh, this whole transformation is based on this one Holtzman quote that says, by the way, the hare must have once been a bird because it lays eggs. So that's why the whole transformation thing is supposedly part of this myth. But enough about this guy, because I I was just starting to get down and thinking, oh, it's just a modern fanciful tale. I don't know why it should matter if a story is really, really old to be a, a worthy myth or not. But I found another article, this one by uh, Lisa Minardi, and she has pictures and proof 
that demonstrate that the Easter hare is in fact much older than the Brothers Grimm. For example, Again, there's this pictures. Uh, I don't. I don't know if I'm following this one. Uh, I I have uh, <laughs> more information on this. Okay. This picture that I'm looking at right now, which is a crudely drawn bunny with a basket full of eggs strapped around it, it's printed on paper that has a watermark of PU, and apparently that watermark was only associated with someone named Peter Ulrich and. Peter Ulrich was only alive from 1734 until 1812, which would put it 20 years at least before the Brothers Grimm wrote anything. So yeah, clearly this myth is a bit older than we've been led to believe. Also an interesting note, uh, the Easter Bunny, also known as the Osterhaus, or Easter Hare, uh, the term bunny is a modern colloquialism. There are distinct differences between hares and rabbits. In general, hares have larger and longer ears, and live in nests above ground, as opposed to burrows in the ground. Hey, Maybe a, a bird reference there. bird association mm. going on there. I mm. had no idea that rabbits lived in trees, or here I am saying rabbit hares lived in trees, as opposed to underground. Are we sure that they do? That's what this says. I think they live in hey. holes, or caves. <laughs> live in nests above ground. Well, maybe not in trees, but uh, nests above ground, as opposed to burrows okay. in the ground. Above ground uh, is more believable than... In trees. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> in nests, I, in trees, I yeah. I can't picture any type of rabbit or hare climbing. Yeah, <laughs> and how that would be practical. <laughs> oh, Plus, gosh. the birds would eat its babies. Like, there would be predatory birds out there that would be looking for its babies. It just wouldn't, yeah, you can't easily get to it as the rabbit mother if you need to protect your nest. Anyway, tree's not good. (laughs) Tree's no-go. Many of the symbols of Ostara have roots in other traditions, and the use of rabbits and hares is one example. In medieval times in Europe, the March Hare was seen as a fertility symbol. A species of rabbit was mocked. Nocturnal most of the year, but in March is mating season for the animal. Oh, yeah, this is crazy. Did you know that um, March hares can actually get pregnant with a second litter while they're carrying their first litter? Yeah. Yikes. (laughs) That poor hare. (laughs) I can see why it's a fertility symbol. I mean, it's they're just pumping out those babies. Yeah, apparently more than one litter at a time. I would not have imagined that any creature would be capable of this. Yeah. That's about all I've got for uh, Ostara and the the March Hare turned into the Easter Bunny. It doesn't seem almost as believable as you know some guy who dies and then gets resurrected. <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody wants to go down the same rabbit hole I did, Germanic origin is not being disputed, but the dates that uh, that these myths come from are still widely contested, and I don't profess to have the definitive answer here. I just like that the one article had pictures and some kind of proof as opposed to just saying, well, there were different folklorists out there and they each made little tweaks to the myth, which they did. And so eventually this guy citing this guy and it becomes known as ancient somehow. I like to think it dates back a little bit further than that, especially given how easy it is to make the connection of these, the hair and the eggs and fertility in spring. These symbols seemed like they would have been out there for a long time. Yeah. Do either of you celebrate Easter? With chocolate, you mean? <laughs> I celebrate with chocolate. I, I celebrate the day after Easter when all the chocolate's on sale. <laughs> mm, I can't wait until then. Cream eggs sell out like 
so quickly. I buy up a huge stash and then I eat them slowly for a couple months and and that makes me happy. That's my Easter tradition. <laughs> Do you know if uh, you or anyone you know leaves out carrots or little treats for the bunny himself, you know, kind of like milk and cookies for Santa? No, I, I don't think I've even heard of that. No? Is that a thing? It was a thing back in the 1700s, but maybe that is part of the... Uh, German tradition that died off. Yeah. Listen, if I leave it out right now, the squirrels are just going to get it. <laughs> we had some bunnies around our house, and I left out some uh, some carrots for them because it was winter, and they were trying to eat our garden. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll distract them with some carrots. But then I read that you're not supposed to feed them, so maybe it's not a good idea to leave any food outside. Also, the squirrels and skunks would probably... Skunks. Get in there. That's like yeah. if you attract skunks, they will come back forever. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. really? I wonder if that means you could domesticate them. You can. Kind of. <laughs> it's not, not fully heard domesticated. Of, I've, he- I've heard people getting rid of their stink gland or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 You can actually uh, surgically remove their glands and actually keep them kind of as a pet. I mean, they're still a wild animal yeah they're not good keep pets them indoors mm-hmm. they cause a lot of mess from what i've heard mm-hmm. yeah. yeah they're like foxes like if mm-hmm. you try to um even if you have a domesticated fox it's still a fox like it's still going to be somewhat destructive in the home it'll be very friendly it won't like attack you or bite you but it will destroy your house <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so I don't recommend leaving food out for the bunnies, but you you do you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I have a very religious family, and we celebrate Easter. Yes, but why is there this connection between like the Easter bunny and the resurrection of Jesus? Like, why, mm. why is it celebrated at the same time? It's such a strange uh, combo. Well. This is me just going out on a limb because I don't actually have any material in front of me. But to some extent, it's just a coincidence that they both picked the the spring equinox as the date, you know. And you're considering that Easter Bunny, by the sounds of it, is coming from a line of pagan traditions of fertility rites and whatnot, whereas the Christians are just taking the uh, the astrological significance of the sun doing the little dip in the sky and then rising and giving us brighter days from the spring equinox on. I've heard that a lot of like Christianity, uh, the days they have picked and things like that um, were based off of pagan um, dates and ideas and things like that, just because they wanted to set themselves as a contrast to the pagans. Um, Mm. So even things like um, Christmas in December is right by the, the winter solstice. And uh, yeah, so they conflict with that. So they are setting themselves apart and maybe forcing pagans to choose them over paganism. Uh, That's just what I've heard. I don't have anything to back that up, but like, that's just what I've heard. So it's, antagonistic i thought it would be more like Mm. they're trying to bring these people into the fold and say you're celebrating something at this time we also have a thing that you can celebrate along this same time period if you'd like to just you know climb on board with us then uh we can get this christianity 
cart off the off the ground. I don't really see Christians, early Christians, as being very charitable and nice. <laughs> <laughs> they did a lot of bad stuff, including burning people. So I think I'm going to go with mine. <laughs> but they are, you know, they're vigorous missionaries. They're always trying to bring people into the fold, supposedly. And <laughs> even though I'm sure they came afterwards to... Uh, to critique the pagan religions and say no more of that once they gain the upper hand. When Christianity is just, you know, trying to find its footing, I could see them you know, trying to draw some, some common lines and say, hey, we're not so different. Come on over. You think very highly of early Christians. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I would be shocked and appalled if I uh, did a little bit more research on this. I'm pretty sure we can find lots of Awful things. <laughs> Much more stomping out as opposed yeah. to bringing in. Mm. So what what do Christians usually do for Easter? Like in terms of celebrations? They celebrate Lent, I think. I think, isn't that the only one that they really have religious significance attached to? You know, where they, yeah, so they give they up the something fasting. for, what is it, 40 days? And then um, it's supposed to, isn't it supposed to represent how... Um, Jesus was in the tomb, presumably dead for a certain amount of time. And then yeah. he arose and that's when they have their big feast and celebration. Yeah, you're right. Actually, I just looked it up and it says, uh, starting Ash Wednesday and ends approximately six weeks later. So 40 days. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, I got a very religious family, and so <laughs> I go to their place every Easter. This year, I don't have to. I don't have to hear Grace. So it's, an, it's another <laughs> excuse to eat, right? Yeah. It's basically yeah. just another excuse to eat. Mm -hmm. I like going because it's, it's good. There's a good, like, turkey and ham. We usually have a couple options, some potatoes and some vegetables. So I, I feel rabbit? like... Like rabbit stew? No rabbit. But I feel like these Christians, they have a really good feast idea going on. I like some of their celebrations. I enjoy the feasting. That's uh, how they get members. I know, they, right? ah, there you go. The That's how they get you. <laughs> this is this is the link to our cult conversation. This is how it works. Yep. Lured yeah. Lured in with food. <laughs> they have lured me in because I want some of that. Oh, it's so good. Oh, the foods are so good. And then the chocolate associated with it. Oh, delicious. I wonder where the chocolate part came from. I wonder if they saw bunny poop and were like, yeah, that kind of looks like chocolate. Let's make some bunny poop. I see poop. the eggs here, the eggs. <laughs> <laughs> we have the egg part. Now let's do the poop part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm hmm I was hoping we yeah. left that behind. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, make, we make the eggs out of chocolate, and, and that's where I see the disconnect. Like, because we want to eat the eggs, mm -hmm. I guess. I don't know. I wonder, I wonder where that was... came about. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. Cause why, it... why not quail eggs? Like, you know, you, you could have kids looking for quail eggs and then have breakfast yeah. and yeah. an omelet. <laughs> well, it seems like the old traditions talk more about decorating the eggs than uh, than unwrapping them to get candies out of them. I wonder if that's uh, got some commercial ties to it, some chocolate business that said, hey, I know what we can do with some eggs. Just wrap them up in that a... That seems totally foil likely. Can... Like, much, much more likely <laughs> that some uh, business person <laughs> decided, I see an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> let's turn chocolate... Let's make chocolate eggs. If I'm thinking about it, what are the two biggest, you know, chocolate-related holidays? It's probably Halloween and Easter. 
for when they get their biggest kick in sales. So mm. it seems like there might be Christmas some... too. They they got to space it out, right? You have what's, Halloween. What's chocolate at Christmas? Have... I don't know. Toblerone. Tend to, like, oh, lots of... oh. Yeah. chocolate oranges. Yes, I'm all about the chocolate, <laughs> <laughs> the religious chocolate. I'm here for it. <laughs> all right. Well, we've got got like also it's the chocolate industrial complex. I think there's a I it's either Germanic or maybe Swedish uh origins where you give um a letter like a chocolate letter to somebody um like the letter of their name or whatever. So there's yeah. that. Yeah. So there's lots of chocolate within within religious celebrations. Also I'm here for it. Chocolate at Christmas with Santa Claus coming from Germany, chocolate at Easter with the Easter bunny coming from Germany. I'm starting to see a connection here. I got to research Halloween next and find out if there's any uh, any Germanic origins Germa- to that. Germa- yeah, <laughs> Germanic origins. It's a conspiracy. Correct me I if I'm wrong, <laughs> but is Germany not also known for its chocolates? The land of chocolate? Belgium is, and that's nearby, right? Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. Exactly. <laughs> it's all the same. <laughs> Did you did you guys ever do like the Easter egg hunt when you were little when you were a kid? Of course. I don't think no. I did. No. Uh, no. Oh, you missed out. Yeah. The <laughs> windowsills were always a hot oh, spot. I don't really care. In my household, <laughs> mom would always hide them in the windowsills, and so you could get like six of them if you just attacked the windows right away. One year, I woke up really early and I found all of the Easter eggs before anyone else in my family got up, and then. <laughs> My parents had to rehide them because <laughs> I had taken too many. You <laughs> I brat. found them all. <laughs> I just woke up early and I was like, did the Easter Bunny come? And I was really young and I thought the Easter Bunny was real. And uh, yeah, found them all. <laughs> early bird gets you, the you worm. Were pro- you were, exactly. You were proactive. Right? You should, have, you should have taken all of them. I should be praised for my, being proactive. <laughs> I was very sad. You snooze, you lose. Yeah, I was very sad when I had to split all of my spoils. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they should have planned for this and at least had, like, a special chocolate bunny to give you as, like, your first place medal. Like, we know you won, (laughs) Sherry. Take this big bunny and now share the rest with your your sibling. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, I was an early riser. Uh, Yeah. I want to continue that tradition, I think, with my kids is hiding the Easter eggs. I don't want any like religious associations with it, but I want to hide some Easter eggs. Ah, and but you can it, just go straight yeah. pagan with it, you know. Yeah. Unless you want to tell them the tale of Ostara, why not? That one's mm-hmm. uh, relegated to the secondary mythological thing. Nobody's going to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, just yeah. leave out all the the Christ God stuff. Mm-hmm. Or you just say springtime is when we celebrate that the bunnies come back out of their holes to enjoy the outside world. Spring so, renewal, fertility. Yeah. If you want to be a parent who does yeah. the birds and the bees talk really, really early, it's all good. <laughs> and yeah, well, you don't need to do a birds and bees talk. They they're pooping chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you're, you're teaching them about the digestive system. <laughs> I don't want to encourage my children to pick up rabbit poop, though. Just pop it in their mouths. Mommy, look what I found. Easter Bunny. Easter Bunny's been in the front yard. Or worse, the dog. Oh, the dog's pooping chocolate. No, no, stop. 
Rory hates how we have taken this sideways. I don't like that we've descended into poop talks. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was telling you a lofty myth about a bird turned into a hare, and all of a sudden it's crapping chocolate goodies for everyone. (laughs) I like where we've ended up, poop. (laughs) It's it's symbolic of how it's all crap. (laughs) It's all this crap. Oh, jeez. Okay, so... Thanks, everyone, for listening to our segment on mythological creatures. And we'll talk to you guys next time. See you later. It's a good time. See ya. Happy Easter. (laughs) I've been uh, reading up on emergency preparedness uh, from the Red Cross for some reason. I don't know why I went down that rabbit hole, but they <laughs> gave some guidelines on, you know, what you need to stock in terms of food, water. What should you be stocking? Uh, oh, you're supposed to stock for at least three days of uh, rations because apparently that's uh, the government should be able to fix anything in three days, according to them. <laughs> Not oh. sure about that, but <laughs> but apparently three days is kind of the standard in terms of you should have three days of water. Three days of food, um, uh, battery control, uh, or one of those hand crank radios. Oh, um, yeah? That I don't have. I um, don't either. But, yeah. Flashlight, batteries, things like that. What if nothing I own operates on batteries? It's kind of like redundant to have batteries then, isn't it? I have, a, I have a lot of battery packs, like stuff that I can use to charge my phone. I feel like the phone Ooh. is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As long as I have my phone, water, water than or phone than water. Absolutely, it's phone and water. I need to be able to check Twitter before I drink water. That's where all the important news ends up on the Twitter. Yeah, I mean Twitter will be able to tell me where to go to find water, right? Absolutely. Yeah. More like TikTok. I think you should go. <laughs> TikTok. Go on TikTok. <laughs> find a TikTok hack. <laughs> Oh, TikTok is just going to give me suggestions on how to dance my way out of it. (laughs) (laughs) What to do when you're in survival mode? (laughs) Put out amusing videos. Gain a following. They will provide you with water.